So, uh, welcome to the Detour podcast. Um, today, we have a very special guest, Rupert Guinness. is a senior sports writer, previously with Fairfax and News Limited, and a best-selling author of 15 books. He's a cycling tragic, one of the most respected journalists in the world cycling, and also a very good mate of mine. G'day, Rupert. G'day, Evie. Thanks for having me on the show. <laughs> well, mate, we couldn't have a, a show on cycling uh, without uh, having, having you involved. Um, but before we go into all things cycling and uh, Hawaiian shirts, let's see you wearing yours, um, the, uh, we talk about our partners, who uh, a couple of them happen to be partners of yours as well, so uh, it works in well. So firstly, uh, Bike Exchange. So for anyone out there who's looking for a bike, and in this current uh, uh, world we're in, bike uh, sales have gone ballistic. Bike shops, uh, you're struggling to get one in a bike shop. So you've got to go to Bike Exchange. Uh, and if you're looking for a bike and uh, don't know where to start, then go to the Bike Exchange Concierge. Um, the Bike Exchange team uh, is on hand to answer any of your questions. So, uh, and I know that they partnered you in your recent uh, VRAM uh, um, challenge group. Yeah, they certainly do, Effie. Yeah. Uh... Great partners to, to come on board, and uh, we're pretty excited about, you know, about the future as well. Because uh, no one uh, project stops with one project. There's always ideas that come out of it. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, an Australian uh, uh, idea. There's now around the world in, in eight countries. So a fantastic partner. Um, also, let's go motorhomes. So I noticed you had them uh, involved, even though you weren't going anywhere. You had the motorhome uh, parked uh, in Sydney. Tell us about that. Yeah, yeah. During VRAM, the virtual race across America, we uh, uh, we had a Let's Go Motorhome. The Conquest Royale was the model, and it was positioned behind me uh, for the twelve days of VRAM. And the idea we wanted to first to set up a scenario that we were going somewhere, even though we weren't. After twelve days, we were still parked <laughs> at, the, at the at the G Brothers uh, G Brothers Mercedes garage in uh, Monavale in Sydney. And um, but the idea was to have that, and obviously it was very useful. Uh, and I had my very short uh, naps. Um, I could go into my motorhome or into the Let's Go motorhome and uh, uh, get quite comfortable, to tell you the truth, with a nice little double bed at the back. So uh, uh, John and Andrew in Let's Go were telling me that's the least uh, uh, fuel that's ever been used for two weeks of, of a hire for, of the uh, Let's Go motorhome. But uh, they are, the, you know, they're great for the perfect family escape. And, and amazingly, they're, they're actually um, really going gangbusters at the moment. I thought with all the overseas uh, travellers who normally hire the Let's Go Motorhomes, uh, they'd be quiet. They would be very quiet, but they've been uh, going really well. I think they've slowed down a little bit in Melbourne uh, <laughs> at the moment. Uh, Melbourne well, becoming uh, the Mexico I, of, uh, of Australia. <laughs> well, I can tell you that uh, I went past the uh, – I was doing a recovery ride on the weekend. I went past the Let's Go Motorhomes base in Botany in Sydney, and uh, it was – it was almost empty. So obviously those motorhomes are going somewhere. I like to think it was because of the uh, the push that we gave it with VRAM, but I think there's a few other elements in the game there. Yeah, I think so, of course. And our other great partner, Alexis of Blackburn. Um, so if anyone's after uh, a, a new car, um, then Lexus of Blackburn is the place to go. And they're a great partner in cycling. They're sponsors of, of the Sun Tour and the Bay Crits and you know, the, the, the National Championship. It's been fantastic. And you met 
the, the Moore family uh, a couple of years ago when they came uh, on the Tour de France for the final week. I remember we had that infamous, uh, uh, the TGV trip from right down the bottom of, uh, of France um, up to Paris, and it's called the very fast train. Well, it was a very slow train that day. Remember that one, mate? Oh, I'll never forget it. If, I mean, I guess that, that experience uh, making the transfer back to Paris it was, reminded me of the good old days of the adventure that the Tour de France can be. And sometimes those adventures get lost these days, but it only takes one little experience like that where uh, we uh, came to a stop and because uh, the, uh, the TGV, we had, had no catering. We suddenly realised we had a five-hour uh, uh, trip uh, with no food, no drinks, you know, on the night before the Tour de France finishing. We stopped somewhere, and nobody knew how long we were going to stop for, not even the train conductor. <laughs> they just said, oh, Patricia, I'm back, me news. And then suddenly we all ran, ran out in, uh, and spread across uh, the, the station area, <laughs> beers, wine, burgers, chips, the whole lot. <laughs> I think we had a stop, didn't we? I remember Andrew, Sarah, and young Bethany from, from, the, from the Lexus family. And they, uh, we got all the supplies back for them. But, uh, yeah, it was uh, – and then we sat there for another half an hour, so we didn't have to run at all. But anyway, that's the way it well, I, remember, I remember that sense of fear that we had all those all our bags on the, on the train. And, oh. uh, she, was, she was the only one with, with about 20 bags. And I remember standing with uh, Sammy Edmund outside the kebab shop ordering, ordering 12 uh, – <laughs> 12 kebabs, and the guy suddenly thought it was a piece of art. He was taking so long to, uh, to get the kebab going. Anyway, we got there. So yeah. it's good to see uh, you're wearing your Hawaiian shirt, as you've become uh, quite uh, famous for. Um, so tell us, how did that start, the, 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 uh, the Hawaiian shirt? Well, like most things, there was no strategy behind it. It was really uh, back in the day before the, uh, the the tour started being covered by television, you know, uh, in Australia especially. I mean, not covered by television, but in Australia, I mean. And uh, it was going back in probably about 1989 and 1990. Uh, I had a couple of Hawaiian shirts, and um, firstly, they're just comfortable. They're light, easy to wash. And in the tour, you know, you just, you just wear clothes over and over. You don't have to take a whole wardrobe. And then um, uh, they became highly visible. Uh, it actually was a practical use, I quickly figured, because one, the cars, whoever I was travelling with in the car, obviously at the stage start and finish, you needed to be able to find people and they could see me. And secondly, there was actually a practical use in the old media scrums. I remember um, Stuart O'Grady once saying how he, uh, there was these, this is the days where the big scrums were there and uh, none of this mixed zone stuff. And, and uh, I managed to get my arm through with a tape recorder and uh, through a funnel, through this phalanx of, of humanity in front of me, I managed to get a question through, and he heard the voice, he recognised it, and he saw the sleeve of my Hawaiian shirt and figured that was me. So that was a practical <laughs> use to it. <laughs> so um, let's uh, move on to the current day um, route. Now, you've just had a hectic couple of weeks. We've just been touching on the VRAM. So the race across America is a, a huge race. So tell us about VRAM and how that all came about. Well, I was uh, training for, for Race Across America, um, which was uh, in its 39th year this year. So it got cancelled because of uh, COVID, uh, like so many other events. And um, very quickly, my uh, crew chief, Anthony Gordon, who's also a videographer, uh, he came up with this idea. Uh, he likes to go walking. And when he goes for a walk, I get worried because he comes back with ideas. Anyway, he came back and he said, why don't, why don't we do it virtually? Um, I originally scoffed at the whole idea and uh, just brushed off like that. What I didn't know at the time, he had spoken to a couple of my support crew about whether they thought uh, I could physically do it and psychologically if I'd be up for it. 
Anyway, as what happens, uh, that night I started pondering over it, over a couple of glasses of rosé, and then little did I know how firmly he had planted the idea in my mind, called him back the next day and said, hey, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> and so we took it up from there, and suddenly over the next seven weeks, basically it went from being uh, an alternative uh, uh, platform for me to use my RAM preparation um, and also to try and use it as a platform to create uh, awareness for mental health into something that morphed into an event which had over 200 competitors in three categories uh, for 30 countries and we were all linked um, uh, by a dot watching system and uh, the overriding cause was for mental health. And suddenly this, uh, over seven weeks, um, we had a 12 day event which uh, for VRAM, uh, virtual RAM, the distance is gonna be four and a half thousand kilometers, although the official distance was shortened later when they realized it was 30% harder it was meant to be because this is all new. This is all part of the excitement of something new and different. Nobody knew how it would work or not. And, um, and at the end of the day, it was a really uh, hugely successful event, I believe. And I think it generated some positivity at a time of, you know, as, as we're all going through now around the world, a lot of uh, challenges. And um, it generated positivity, gave me a platform to, to champion mental health with awareness and also for me to uh, get a good uh, result on the board in preparation for RAM for next year. I was very happy with eighth place, and uh, uh, you know, so the road continues. So we go back a long way, Rup, and uh, I first uh, remember bumping into you on the Tour de France, I think it was in 1991, and you weren't <laughs> such a keen cyclist back then. You'd been, you know, touched on a few other sports, triathlon and, uh, and rowing and stuff. But um, you've really... Uh, grabbed the, the cycling bug over the last few years. So you, you did the um, uh, Indian Pacific wheel races, the Indy Pack, uh, a few years back. T tell us how that came about. Um, I, I became enchanted with the story of the Overlander riders, you know, the, the riders in the late 1890s or early 1890s who were these intrepid pioneers who just sort of set off from... Um, you know, one distant place like Perth into the, into the then unknown of Australia, of inferior Australia. They just followed camel pads and they rode by day by the, as the sun rose, as the sun set. They, they didn't know what was out there um, and they did it for many reasons. And uh, their sort of expeditionary prowess, so to speak, very much had a, had a role in the, uh, in the patchwork of road networks in Australia now, I believe. And... Um, I was writing about the Overlanders in a book called Power of the Pedals, Story of Australian Cycling that came out in 2018. And the second chapter was about the Overlanders. And when I finished writing, sent that manuscript and I thought, wow, you could write a whole book on the Overlanders. Lo and behold, after that, I saw this ad for the Indy Pacific Wheel Race, which said, is there the Overlander in you? So I immediately thought, well, this is, the stars are aligned. This is, I can rediscover the story <laughs> of the Overlanders by doing the Indy Pacific Wheel Race. So I entered it. And that was the, the initial reason. Um, at the time, I was enjoying cycling again. I was getting a little bit disillusioned about uh, professional cycling. And for me, it was an, also offered a, an escape to reattach with the purity of, of cycling and why I really love the sport. And uh, as a lot of us, you know, have loved it since we were kids when we were just tackers, you know, getting to mischief, discovering independence, which wasn't always a, uh, uh, it was fraught with danger, but uh, that was what we loved about it. And that helped me sort of regenerate my love of the sport. So... It, it tells a bit about the Indy Pack. So it, start, it starts in Perth uh, and you're unassisted. So how does it all work? Well, the, uh, the Indy Pack, yeah, it starts in Fremantle, actually, and it starts 
at the South Mole uh, uh, Lighthouse in Fremantle, and it's a 5,471-kilometre route across Australia to Sydney, to the Opera House. It's not the direct route that uh, Sir Hubert Offerman Road. Um, it's actually a route that uh, once you get to Port Augusta, you head down south to Adelaide, then you go up across to Murray Bridge, uh, Tail and Bend, and down along to the coast, down along to your way, if you to Geelong, uh, up through Melbourne, through the Dandenongs, uh, Victorian Alps, uh, the long way through the uh, the Victorian Alps, out through the back of Falls and out to Woolworth, Scott McGrory Territory, and then uh, back through the through the uh, Kosciuszko National Park, Canberra, the Southern Highlands, then you come into Sydney, and then you've got a sting in the tail where there's a 60-kilometre route along a bike path that heads out to Olympic Park, back through the north, across the bridge, uh, to the Opera House. Sounds simple. But <laughs> Trust me, it's not that simple. <laughs> so, uh, of course, the first one ended up being being quite a tragic event. So, take us through a little bit of uh, uh, that absolutely uh, um, tragic story. Yeah, that was uh, 2017, and that was the first uh, indie pack, and that was the one that I entered. Um, uh, Mike Hall uh, from England, he uh, he was killed uh, on just south of Canberra. Um, it was, uh, he was in second place at the time. The leading the race at the time was Christoph Algert from uh, Belgium. And um, uh, Mike was uh, struck by a car uh, in the early hours of the morning and um, uh, was killed uh, almost instantly. But um, irrespective of that, I, at the time I arrived into Adelaide uh, and it was about 9.30 in the morning when I heard of, uh, of, of his death. Um, there was an ABC news report out of a cyclist in the Indy Pack being, you know, having been killed. Um, obviously, that was a shock. I was just getting into the groove of the race, actually. I was two weeks into it and just getting, I'd gone through, adapting from the highs and the lows, and I was looking forward to the, to the second half of the event. And um, uh, I tried to contact my wife, Libby, immediately, and obviously that was, uh, uh, it was a hard call, but, and she was distressed and, I had no qualms about uh, making the decision to stop there and go home, but almost as I got off the phone speaking to her, the race organisers had said the race was uh, officially cancelled. Um, some people, about 20 still continued on. I mean, everyone responds differently to these situations. Uh, but, yeah, that was a, uh, an, awful, um, uh, an awful way for, for the Indy Pack to, uh, to make its debut. It was awful either way. You know, Michael was killed. That was, that was the, the tragedy of it all. Um, but the event still continued the next year unofficially. Um, I did it the next year in 2018 and I finished it. And it still continues to this day. It's, well, it's been the third edition and this year it was, was a fourth edition which stopped because of COVID blocking the, the borders. Um, and it's, a, it's an event that doesn't need to be organised, actually. It's, it's an event that just runs itself. Uh, a group of like-minded people will just meet at the South Mole Island, uh, the lighthouse uh, you know, uh, on the uh, second or third weekend of March and um, go for a long ride across Australia on a route that everybody knows. <laughs> so when you did finish the 2018 uh, one, it, that would probably have been the fittest you would have ever been. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I was, um, uh, yeah, I was, it probably was the fittest I'd ever been. Funnily enough, I only lost half a kilo. <laughs> so it's probably a measure of how much uh, I ate along the way. And... Um, when I when I finished it in 2018, um, I didn't set out with a race mentality. I just rode it to to, to ride it to finish, uh, and I wanted to cherish one the opportunity I had um, to do this event, which as you said was solo and unsupported. So you have to look after yourself, your own 
food, your own sleep, your own, you know, you don't have a support crew or anything like that. So um, I wanted to, to, one, I wanted to finish it, you know, the old cliche of unfinished business, but two, I wanted to show you could ride um, these events safely. I wanted to promote safe cycling um, and about responsibility and taking control of responsibility. Uh, uh, the book that I was writing um, on it, which I'd been contracted before the first Indie Pack, you know, I wanted to show, yeah, you can ride safely. I wanted to make aware of, do that not just for your own safety, but for the concern of friends and families who are um, understandably uh, very, you know, there's a lot of anxiety that they feel in what is ostensibly can be seen as a selfish adventure. And I think I learned a lot of that um, from awareness during that first indie pack. So, you know, my wife was uh, uh, very uh, understanding in me being able to do it again, but I had to um, certainly respect her um, by putting in my own extra measures of safety measures on top of other ones that a lot of people had learned. So, um, so that was, you know, uh, that was how I approached the second one. Funnily enough, I actually was going faster in the second one than I was in the first one when I tried to race it. So um, I don't know how, there's a lot you can read into that. It took me to get across the Nullarbor plane. It took me five days on the second time. The first time it took me seven days. So maybe, I don't know. But either way, I was going faster. I was enjoying it. And um, I made sure every night I had a couple of beers. I'd stay at the local pub in the local towns and try and uh, learn a bit about town and the publican and the old, you know, local football team that nearly won the grand final but just missed out or... Uh, and I, I took time to stop to talk to people, and I really discovered it was a, it's a beautiful way to see a beautiful country, which I it wasn't because of IndyPac. I may not have ever seen so much more, and I think we underestimate what Australia really has to offer. You know, we've got some European vacations and go around the world or to America, but uh, Australia is so diverse, and in the outback and the rural and regional areas, uh, people are really, really good people out there, and um, I think, you know, if I can recommend anybody to to do something different, uh, see Australia. And I said a lot more <laughs> Maybe not right across it on a bike. i got to tell you, Rube, <laughs> I, I do love your books. Uh, you're a fantastic uh, uh, writer. You really put people in the situation. And all of your books on Tour de France and that have been wonderful. But uh, The Overlanders is my favourite. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know much about those absolutely amazing pioneers, as you touched on before, who, for all different reasons, were riding out in the places where no one had hardly ever been. To ride a bike there in those days was just amazing. Uh, but but uh, it really uh, uh, it, it touched me. I, I just love love the book. Yeah, thanks, Sophie. Well, it was a it was a, a book I put a, a you know obviously I put a lot of heart and soul in it because I had to ride across Australia one and a half times to get the the content. Um, I, I certainly, during both rides, I did a lot of the you know, live Facebook um, uh, posts, which a lot of people said, how did I remember all the detail? But actually the live Facebook posts doubled up as not just, you know, keeping people to come along on the journey with me as I went, but it also helped as a, as a, as a visual notepad for me to, to go back. And I, I pledged to myself I would um, be honest with how I'm feeling at the time, you know, and there were some moments in those Facebooks where I looked like a complete idiot. <laughs> Uh, lack of bike uh, mechanical skills and things like that. There were times I was in tears. There were times I was laughing. There was times where I was just soaking up the environment and just showing the camera to, to, to provide a portal for people to see something they may not have seen. And and um, and I was also very transparent about, as I said, the pressures of these events domestically. In, in my case, you know, on my uh, with my marriage and um, our marriage, I should say, and um, with Libby and. Uh, 
And it brought to scope, I guess it was the old rabbit hole. I did think about why am I doing these ultra distance events and and I thought I'd better throw a chapter in, which ended up being a rabbit hole of why do I do this? And and I and I started to figure out a lot of it had to do with my um my own issues with mental health, with self esteem, lack of self esteem issues and uh which came from when I was a kid and uh, and uh, my issues with eating disorder bulimia, which I still struggle with today. So I think it was a very, um, it was more than a bike ride for me. And it was a discovery of not just Australia and a discovery of myself. And, um, it's, it's certainly changed me. I think it's helped me become more comfortable. With, no, it hasn't changed me. It's helped me become me, really, and be comfortable with that. Yeah, well, that's a pretty moving statement, mate. I mean, you've, been, you've been, uh, uh, you know, a long history in journalism. Um, and we'll get back to the beginnings of all that uh, shortly. But uh, it's a pretty tough career. And uh, at the moment, you know, it seems to be uh, j- journalists losing their jobs in, in the newspaper game in large numbers. Um, what's your um, opinion on all of that, mate? Yeah, look, it's... it's um... It is, it is sad. I mean, every day you're picking up, I suppose they pick up the newspapers. There's not much to pick up now because they're very thin. Every day you're reading on the, on, in the media of, uh, of jobs going, and that's happening in, in all industries. So it's not just journalism alone. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's the way the world is today. Uh, but from a media point of view, it, it is very much uh, uh, information that they're driven through the internet, obviously, it's through social media and the power of social media. You can't deny it as much as you may try to ignore it. I did try to. I have gone through phases of thinking this, you know, you can't. No, I've always respected it, but you, you, it's the power of social media is there. So you can't expect to be working in the media and not uh, uh, learn to uh, work with it. Um, uh, but jobs do go. I think because there is so much information out there and so much content and valuable content from uh, people blogging or, or you know, people can make a direct, uh, can use social media and the internet as a direct way to disseminate their message without having to go through traditional media. That eliminates the, the jobs of of, um, of many of uh, mainstream media in particular. Um, yeah, so that's sad, um, but you've had to learn how to deal with it and live with it. Um, and I think uh, it's, uh, and it's an ever-changing beast i think you know it's still yeah. changing faster and faster so you can't get i've learned now you can't get bogged down in the lament of what was one thing somebody told me reminded me was that i remember I, when i started journalism was when newspapers were you know it was in the hot metal days we had compositors down with the printers you know i remember working at the old sun news pictorial the herald sun in melbourne and you go to the printers would be down there churning away just like this you know you knew the edition was getting ready to come out and you um, you know, those demarcation lines not cross over, otherwise, you know, there'd be the strike and everything could be shut down. But they were really exciting, vibrant days, you know, and 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 the whole search pursuit of a story and, and the time you had to commit to to building networks and contacts and trust and um, and um, that went beyond just for me a professional um, as being a professional. That was a lot of values I got out of that, uh, which has helped me outside of work. Um, I'm very lucky I experienced those days. So rather than the lament of not having those days now, I think you've got to sometimes take stock of what you did have and, and appreciate that experience for what it was. Yeah, different. Well, I actually started my apprenticeship as a compositor machinist. So I was one of those guys tapping <laughs> away there, uh, putting out your print, mate. But, yeah, uh, I, I think you guys got cut before we did. <laughs> but yeah, it's funny how you say that because a newspaper, 
used to del- deliver news. You know, it was a rush to get it out. And when people got that, they were actually reading news. Now mm. there's nothing gets printed in the paper that people don't already know about from because no. it's it's instantly out there. But I still yeah. love my newspaper, and I think the the future, the good ones that tell the more inside news of a story, the information. That's what newspaper is about now, having good writers who can then deliver all about the story because it's all clickbait on, on the website. It's bang, bang, bang. It's yep. all about uh, with, with yep. the newspaper being able to read more in depth. Exactly. And I think I think one of the other things that, and more recent changes, which is, which is a, a, a big concern, I think, is, is the demise of regional uh, papers too because... You know that the power of a regional paper in communities, particularly in the regional areas, the country areas, you know that unites towns. You know that that brings people together, and and uh, with those regional papers being cut by the by, you know, more regularly and more regularly, uh, those communities don't have that, that 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 those roots to hold onto. That communicative roots to hold onto. They have to rely on on a metropolitan daily, which cannot give the focus on a town or the region around the town that a regional paper can give. So. Um, that's that's probably my more, more recent sort of uh, uh, regret to see that happen, and I'm, I wish all those towns out there all the best. To hopefully they can find ways to to help each other out communicatively, rather than just having to rely on what is not existing now, the the local paper. Yeah, and no, the real shame of all that, of course, is that's only happened in the last few months. A lot of those community papers have gone in just the last few months, right when they probably needed it most of all with the, the COVID situation. So it's a real tragedy. Exactly, mate. Exactly. 100%. Now, back to cycling. Yep. Um, what are your thoughts on the revised uh, UCI calendar? It's, it's going to be, if, if it does happen, it's going to be a damn hectic uh, couple of months for the bike riders. <laughs> Oh yeah, I mean, I think it's a bit of a. I just don't want to be flippant. But I think it's a bit of a crapshoot, really, by the UCI just throwing all the dice, all the the cards up in the air, and see what lands and what doesn't land. You know, you know, I can't see all the races that they've put down being held. Um, the permutations are, are massive. You know, uh, it only takes one person in one race to be tested positive for COVID. Doesn't matter whether they're a rider or staff member. You know, then you think, what happens then? That team has to be going to isolation, gets pulled from the race, and who's in what hotel? Were they in the same hotel as another team? What happens then? Oh, I cannot see the season ending without something like that happening. Um, I don't. The other element is um, the strain on teams to. It's like they're trying to do a whole season in a couple of months. Um, teams are limited on how many riders they've got as it is. Uh, I can see teams like Sunweb, you know, talking about having bubbles, you know, and then moving around. Um, and you can't deny the efforts that have been put in place to try and accommodate that. But we're seeing here in Australia how hard it is where the situation is not as grievous as it is in, in Europe. And we're talking about, I'm talking about sports, um, you know, whether it's AFL, NRL, rugby union, or, or any, any sports. A lot of these sports are static sports where they're in the stadiums. Cycling is a moving event. So the permutations are even more so. I don't want to sound like a, a doomsayer, but um, and I and I really wish and hope it works. But um, I, I can't see how it's just going to go through smoothly like that. And and the other element is uh, how much pressure will be on riders to to a have to perform and just go back to back. I mean, there's pressure on them anyway. And if they, I guess, some of the teams will be divided up wisely as to, to manage their workload. But you hope that this crammed season into a few months doesn't put extra demands on cyclists. Uh, to race 
just to, to race harder and harder, you know, and not get their recovery. You know, we're talking about riders' well-being, health issues, um, the other pathways that, that we've seen in history, how tired riders can, you know, can lean towards doping to uh, to try and back up again, just finish races and things like this. We don't want to set a scene where that actually encourages, well, it doesn't, well, certainly not doesn't encourage, but where, where riders could be tempted to go down that path because they feel they have to race day in, day out, day in, day out to fill one season in two months. I don't think you can expect that on riders. And, I, and I'd like to think the teams have accommodated that by perhaps choosing some part of their squads to just do a certain amount and then go into pre-season training for next year. So it comes down to management, but there's a lot of, loop, lot of uh, you know, a lot of question marks, if you... Yeah, I was talking to uh, some of the guys at Richmond Scott over the last few days, and uh, and that's one of their big concerns, how they do manage that. Um, and it's interesting uh, talking with the different people over there as to whether they think the racing will get underway. I was reading all the Tour de France guidelines on how they're going to operate the Tour de France uh, in this current situation. And the one thing I didn't seem to touch on is what is, will happen, as you just said, if there is a, a, a positive uh, COVID test to one of the riders? That hasn't, doesn't seem to have been addressed very well in the Tour de France uh, um, pandemic uh, guidelines. No. And if you think you, you can have all of these teams in bubbles, you can have all the official entourage in a supposed bubble, but these bubbles are moving. They're going through towns. They're, going, they're staying in different hotels every night. Uh, so there's different staff every night. Um, there's different, and you're going through villages where people, uh, you know, are they going to have to have uh, lockdowns of villages where villagers are not allowed to come out of their home while the tour goes through? That could happen. I don't know. It's just, it's just so vast. And um, I can understand why they want to have the tour, and I can understand why the French government will work closely with ASO, the organisers, to do all it can to have the tour. Um, I personally wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I, I per, I've Two views. One, I don't. I'll be surprised if the tour is on. But two, if the tour is on, I don't believe it'll finish. You know, some, I just think something will happen um, to force a, a shutdown. I hope it doesn't happen if it does start. But primarily, I hope it is not continued um, to compromise the health of not just the tour entourage, but you know, France in Europe. I mean, how quickly does it? It spreads so quickly. We know this in Australia. So why? Why risk it? Yes, and they're in a much worse situation than us over in, in mm. France, Spain, Italy at the moment, and, and Britain. Uh, they, they've got their numbers are just uh, um, just soaring way, way above ours, and yet they're still talking about opening up things. So it's mm. a, a, a strange situation we're in. So we're going to take a break, uh, and when we return, uh, it's all about the Tour de France and the man who's covered uh, more than 30 of them. Eyes on Bikes help grow small businesses. We are the world's number one bike marketplace, where buyers and sellers are brought together in a place where a bike is never just a bike. Bike Exchange, where the world buys, sells, learns, and rides. So before we uh, get onto the tour, Roop, uh, let's talk about uh, your beginnings in journalism. So how did that all start? Um, I, n I never really aspired to be a journalist. Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, actually. My first job after I left school was uh, was in a pub, funnily enough. <laughs> and um, and uh, I did that for about a year. Um, uh, gee, it frustrated me, though, because I hated being in a pub, not being able to have a beer. Although I found a way around that, but that's another story. <laughs> but, uh, 
And then um, I remember my mum, who was a journalist, um, funnily enough, she was kind of concerned about where I was going with my life. And uh, I didn't go to university. I, I, uh, you know, I qualified for university. I was going to do an arts degree. I signed up, but then I, um, I never really, I deferred for one year, then two years. And I never actually did it. So I ended up um, getting a job as a, under my mum's encouragement. She dropped me off at the office of News Limited in Sydney in Surrey Hills for an opening as a copy boy. Um, and um, copy boys and copy girls were basically gophers in those days, and they basically had to work on the editorial floor, uh, getting things for editors, getting photos, getting copies, getting meals, um, getting phone books thrown at you, getting the wrong photos, the wrong meals, <laughs> taking messages down to people like yourself, the compositors downstairs, and um, you know, uh, basically just doing all that. And every few months you'd get a, a, a test where you could... Uh, uh, it was for a cadetship and um, basically you did these tests and over the time you'd done three tests, your average was worked out and if you got in the top five, you got a cadetship and that's what happened with me and a cadetship was pretty much like an apprenticeship and it was then it was a three-year cadetship which you did. You didn't have to go to university but it was all on the job training um, and you got moved around every few months to another section of the paper or to another paper altogether. So you had got a good cross you know, across the board um, grounding of, of journalism. Then obviously then you get to choose where you want to uh, focus on. And for me, it was sport. And um, uh, my first uh, paper where I, well, where I stayed full-time in one section of sport was The Australian. Um, and I was in the Sydney office. And then, two, then uh, in 1984, I moved down to Melbourne for their Melbourne Bureau for a year and, uh, and uh, ended up living down in Melbourne for four years. So uh, that's really how it started. And then that's when I fell in love with, with, with the bike. <laughs> and which took you so then you what took you to europe because you, you were based in europe for quite a while yeah it was um uh, um after 1986 um i went i was coming back i came back from uh, having competed in the hawaii ironman for the second time i did it in 85 and 86 and um i'd quit my job at the uh, melbourne sun news pictorial now the herald sun to train full time for, for Hawaii, so I came back and I guess I was in need of a job. And um, during that time, um, I you know I met Phil Anderson, uh, who, as you know, if he and a lot of people, our listeners would know, you know, was the first or non-European to uh, ever claim the yellow jersey in '81. So I was or had already been sort of enamoured by his story, and through that, the story of European cycling. And I was, used to pick up this magazine, winning magazine, that here in Australia would receive six months late. So you get the Tour de France special in December and find out about <laughs> the Tour de France. But it was still great. You know, you read it, you looked at the pictures, you know, fabulous pictures of Graham Watson and uh, stories written by John Wilcoxon, who's then. This is all pre-internet and uh, pre, you know, we didn't have the, the tour on TV or anything. You know, the videos were six months late too. So, you know, John's writing would describe how these slight cross westerlies would blow across the plains through the lily field, not the lily field, through the sunflowers, and suddenly <laughs> a drop of sweat would fall off Bernardino's nose. And, you know, like all this, and you, but you actually used to feel like you were living and breathing it. Anyway, so um, I wrote to John as I came back from the States, and I met John at, uh, at the Coors Classic. And obviously in 86, they were having the World Championships there in Colorado Springs. So I wrote to John explaining how I would love to come over to Europe. I'd love to write. I was going to write a book on Phil Anderson. And um, and I'd love to come over. Thought there'd be any work. And John, well, I did. I know John was little. Did I know John was leaving Winning Magazine, and said they need an editor. So I just made the right call at the right time. And 
uh, I got a one-way ticket to uh, to go over there and edit uh, Winning UK, the UK edition, which was published in Brussels, and um, and uh, that's how it all unfolded, really. And I was going to be a one-year working holiday, and uh, and it became I didn't stay at Winning, obviously, but uh, it was a one-year working holiday. I ended up living there in Belgium for four years, and then five years in France until I came back in uh, early '96. And uh, but it was a great way to see not just Europe, but it was a great way to see you know, I went to Colombia to Japan for cycling. Um, you know, I used to even get to come back to Australia for the old Commonwealth Bank Classic. I never got to the Sun Tour though, if you we've got to sort that out one day, or but, the Bay uh, Classic, even more the Bay. the Bay Classic. <laughs> I have got there once, I have got there once, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. Um, now what was that crazy Belgian's name who owned Winning Magazine? <laughs> Uh, Jean Claude Garot. Jean Claude um, Garot. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, I remember him because yeah, I yeah. actually, for a year or so there, um, did an Australian edition with him, and uh, yeah. he used to write some of the stuff for that. And we uh, we had a, a bit of fun because it was a beautiful magazine. I mean, it was a, it was yeah. a classy, beautiful photography uh, and all of that. And you, as you say, you're based in London. I think you shared a flat for a while with. Uh, there we go. Just. Perfect. We built this morning. <laughs> exactly. Um, you shared a flat in London with Darren McQuaid, who's now uh, chairman of uh, Mitchell and Scott. Yes, yes. I, I, I lived with the chairman. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, we, uh, we um, his sister Anne McQuaid was, was uh, the manager of Winning UK, and um, she was my boss. And, uh, um, and uh, the, the Winning UK office in London was in East Sheen. Sheen, and um, uh, originally I was going to live in in, uh, in London, and then go and you know take the ferry across all the time to Belgium, to Brussels, to to uh, pub, to edit the magazine. And so for the first six months, uh, Tony Doyle, famous uh, six days cyclist, um, who used to, you know, as you know, if you would have raced against mm -hmm. him or with him, I'm sure, and uh, yeah. had some great partner with the great Danny Clark, and uh, a lot of stories there. Anyway. <laughs> Um, uh, he rented me and Dara his house in Sunbury on Thames, and um, uh, it was never quite. They had a, used to have a beautiful rose garden at the back, and nice little sort of English look about. It. Obviously, it's in England, but English <laughs> <laughs> all the time. An Aussie and an Irishman had lived there for six months. Put it that way. Uh, well, we know Dara. Dara's a good mate of mine as well, as you know. And uh, um, the three of us have had some fun times together over the years, and Tour de France and Giro and uh, etc. Um, so, your first Tour de France. When was that? Uh, Nineteen eighty-seven, and because uh, that was the year I moved over to uh, left Australia, early eighty-seven, and. Um, um yeah uh it was that was on my bucket list you know to follow the tour de france one time and here i was with winning magazine getting the chance to work on uh yeah to cover the tour and um that was the year stephen roach won it and um funny enough uh roach uh, part of winning magazine uh, roach agreed to do a, a daily diary for us and um again that was back in, a, in an earlier day there was no agent to deal with there was no money um, spoken of as just uh, an agreement, shake of the hand, and this we didn't know how we we're going to do it. Let's try and do it. It was before teams had buses and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> I've got pictures of me sitting there in a gutter interviewing Stephen Roach, you know, and, uh, you know, and, uh, and he ended up winning the Tour de France. So uh, that was a fortuitous start, I have to say, in my Tour de France uh, reporting days. But uh, 
it was every bit the adventure that I thought it would be, plus some more, you know, and things went right, things went wrong, and usually things that you didn't expect would go wrong. Uh, but it really was, uh, it was a true adventure for me and uh, lived up to every expectation. I remember 91 was the first uh, tour that I did, uh, did with Simon Townley, uh, mm. who was the sports editor of the, uh, of the uh, Herald, or the Sun as it was at the time, uh, and um, just the two of us. And, of course, we bumped into you on many, many occasions. Uh, and uh, I did. I came back in, I think, 98, and I've done them all since. And this is July, and normally you and I would be at, at the tour. So we're both um, first July back in Australia for a long, long time. Yeah, right now we'd be talking about uh, you know, our, our Monday lunch in Paris, wouldn't we? <laughs> yes, well, uh, you know, dreaming. Close to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but so, just take me through some of those early tours. I mean, not many uh, um, Australians riding. I, I think uh, um, four or five maximum back in those days. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's basically like a, a sort of a turnaround of four or five riders each. Each year, uh, Phil was Phil Anderson was you know getting towards the back end of his career, even though he did win a you know he jagged the stage in in '91. Um, but he was he was getting towards the end of his career. Uh, Alan Piper was there, you know, Stephen Hodge, Neil Stevens, Scotty Sunderland, um, uh, Michael Wilson. Uh, he was around. Uh, he wasn't at the Tour de France, but he was around on the pro scene at the time, and uh, he was uh, he was a fabulous cyclist, Michael Wilson. He uh, uh, and a fabulous person too, and um, um, uh, yeah, he was really—he was a true gentleman. He used to, you know, he always offered a, a smile, and and, uh, and we went every store. I said at a, at dinner, he'd often give us a, a suggestion for a good wine as well. Met myself and Graham Watson, and um, yeah, so there was, a, there was some, it was a nice sort of band of of, uh, of riders of varying skills. Obviously, all of them excellent cyclists because they, they were on these, uh, you know, these. Uh, wasn't well toured then, but on these you know top ranked pro teams, um, and they had different skills and different uh, personalities, and uh, in in some ways you felt you were a part of. I mean, I was never a part of their group, but it was just a. Uh, I guess I was an extension of this of this band of Aussies going over there, and you would have experienced that in in your days if you're riding over there. You know, you sort of do draw to each other, and you have different experiences, and uh, but you also feed off each other's experiences when you hear of. Because then, you know, English wasn't spoken as widely as it is now. I remember having my first interview with Jean-Marie Leblanc, the race director, and the first thing he said was in French, he said, of course, you speak French. That's the language of, of cycling, you know. And uh, and um, fortunately, I did, but not as – fortunately, I learned it a lot better too. Um, <laughs> that was, it was their world, their thinking, and, um, you know, they just had to adapt to it. But that was, that was you know, you, you were naive and you weren't going to expect otherwise when you went over there. So that uh, so how tough was it when you're building a friendship with riders and, and, and staff and then you have to write the tough story, which has a bit of a go at them? How, how did that work? Um, yeah, that was pretty hard. And, and you know me, if you're not. Um, it's one of my journalistic strengths. Um, it's no, see, I don't like conflict and, and you've got to embrace conflict to be ready for it. And, and, and uh, it's certainly an area of... You know, if I look back on my career, there's probably areas where I sh perhaps I sh should have or could have uh, embraced the essence of conflict a bit better rather than taking a cautious approach. But I also did generally like to think that, um, you know, uh, 
you know, you can be, there's a certain degree of objectivity as well. But um, so, look, with, 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 at that time, I mean, um, the, uh, if you wrote a story and they didn't like it, uh, I guess they'd just bring you up and tell you. <laughs> that was basically it then because that, that was the line of communication or they saw you at the next race and they'd say, hey, mate, didn't like what you wrote the other day. You know, why? And, 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 so, and I used to find the best way was to talk about it, talk it out. Um, I remember Sean Kelly once having a go at me at the start of a Tour de France and, and uh, we were in Lyon and, and he said, I went up to him after stage one. It was one of those, he was on PDM and I think he, they missed the, the, the break on stage one and uh, they were the only big team that missed the break. And, and he said to me in his Irish accent, he said, obviously Irish accent, he's Irish. And he was still recovering, so I'm not talking to you until you, until you tell me, admit you were wrong with what you wrote last year after stage one. I'm going, I can't remember what I wrote after stage one. And he went, <laughs> and I said, well, I can't even remember what I wrote. You know, like, but he could. Obviously, he's like an elephant with, yeah. with detail. And he obviously yeah. didn't forget. You know, he obviously was going to take issue with me. And I said, look, I've got, how, how about we look at this way? You let me go and have a look tonight. And if I'm wrong, I'll admit it to you. And then you can talk to me. Then, then you'll, you'll agree to talk to me. So I thought, I'm going to play with it. Don't, don't get all defensive. Just say, hey, he's obviously. <laughs> I went back. And I thought I was dead set right. I thought, I've got Kelly. You know, I thought, how stupid is it? Never think you've got Kelly. And, and uh, I checked, and I was wrong. And I walked oh. back. He, he knew in my head that I was wrong. That I knew that I was wrong, you know. And uh, but that was, you know, that you do that direct front up. You know, someone doesn't like what you wrote, they would confront you with it. Uh, you can discuss it. I tried to discuss it. Then I found out if, if I was wrong. Yeah, just admit I was wrong. You know, made a mistake. And I'll get it right next time. <laughs> I remember organising a, a, a party after one tour to France. One that uh, Cadell didn't have a real good tour, if I remember rightly. But oh, at the after party yeah. uh, on the Sunday night, and um, everyone was having a good time. And Cadell walked in, a couple of his mates, and I had a spot for him to sit. I, and he said, I'm not sitting there. Why? He said, I'm not sitting there next to Rupert or Ron Reed. I said, Why? Yeah. And you'd both written something that had been a bit uh, out of go with him. And, and he, yeah, it, it took him a while to get over that. Wouldn't sit there. Yeah, yeah. There. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you fast forward the date line a bit. This is where that was during, uh, yeah, where, where, I think it's 2000 and um, would have been 2008 or possibly 2009. Um, and, um, uh, you know, uh, Cadell, you know, he was a, uh, um, he could be a, a challenging personality to work with, you know, at his times. And, and, um, and I think uh, at that time that we'd written a story about the Lotto. Uh, team boss saying that Cadell could still stay with the team, but he wouldn't be their number one. He wouldn't be sole leader. And um, obviously, I think Cadell didn't appreciate that story, but that's what the team boss said. And and, and the team boss is the one who pays the bills, you know. And it was a story. Cadell, Cadell, you know, he'd had a he'd missed out on 2008. You know, it's obviously missed out narrowly in 2007 by 23 seconds. 2008, he missed out by 58 seconds. So then. 2009, I think it started to uh, blow out a bit, and um, and you know there were people questioning whether Cadell would be able to win the tour or not. You know, I think most people agreed he, he had he had the physical capabilities, but I think the one element that was then his um, uh, perceived uh, area where his rivals could get at him was his was probably his um, his uh, psychological um, 
uh, strength. He was tough as nails. I'm not saying he wasn't tough, but you know, being able to, I think he absorbed too much of the exterior noise without having to worry about it. And I think, in respect, and I, and I got so much respect for Canelo. And and to his credit, you know, we we forged a very good relationship after those tough years. Sometimes you got to bottom out to to uh, <laughs> forge a, a strength of understanding between two people. And we we had we did speak about understanding each other better. And and certainly, you know, you know. I guess you could say like a good bottle of red, mate. You don't want to open it too early, you know. That's just bitter. <laughs> but if you open it at the right time, it tastes great, as it did in 2011 when he, when he won the Tour de France. Oh, there you go. We'll, we'll go there in a minute. I can remember one, one of those, to around about that 2008-2009 time, uh, I was writing for the uh, Geelong Addy, which is also Cadell's uh, home paper. And uh, I went up to, to get a grab with him the day when they were, doing the, the uh, official stuff the day before the race. And uh, I went walked up to the thing. He said, uh, John, I reckon if I said something was black, you'd say it was white. I said, what are you, what are you talking about? And something I'd written in the preview, um, he he reckons he didn't say. Well, that's because he probably didn't. And, and I said, oh, so then he stormed off. And I think, oh, three weeks to go. And... Yeah. Uh, I'm writing to the Geelong Andy. He's not talking to me. So the next day I said to him at the start, listen, mate, I will only write exactly what you say for the next three weeks. He said, I believe that when I read it. Uh, <laughs> but then he, he was fine after that. So he'd had his go and uh, we settled yeah. down. I, I also found a way that, you know, obviously, you know, Cadell was understandably, um, you know, the time for a cyclist, particularly in the modern, more modern tours, and I put Cadell in the more modern tours, um, you know, time goes so fast in in, 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 a, in a in a tour day. And you think that's twenty three or twenty three or whatever days. Um, you know, the most calmest time is possibly in the race rather than outside it. And one minute becomes two becomes five and they have to answer a lot of the same it's their job. But they answer a lot of the same questions. So I can understand the frustration when they hear or interpret something as being uh, as they say, silly or stupid, but uh, like a cyclist, not every pedal stroke a cyclist makes is, is the wisest, best pedal stroke either. You know, I mean, I, I had that with Stephen Roach once. He, I got upset with him once where he 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 he, uh, he shook me on head and said, "Oh, you you know, you're a silly idiot, aren't you, Rupert?" Like I was some sort of toy, and I got the real, um, I got really peed off. To the point I wrote in the letter saying that not every not every kilometre you ride is the best or wisest one either, mate. You know, I'm just doing my job. I ask a hundred questions in a day, and not all of them are going to be right. You know, sound the wisest yeah. question. But that was the yeah. game point. Deal with it. Just confront them and deal with it. And he dealt with me. That, well, we spoke the next day, and we laughed about it later. You know, we didn't necessarily laugh about it later, but uh, he has his way of of I think appreciating in time. When it steps away from things, you know. I mean, the fact that you know you 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 have you had moments with Cadell, and then you still have you know good relationships with him. I did, you know, had I crossed swords with him too. But um, crossing swords, as I said, helps you better understand the person you're dealing with too. Because you, if you have a conflict with someone, you're going to walk away and think about where they're coming from. And if you're going to be fair, at least try and understand where they're coming from. Um, yeah. Then you get a better feel for what they're or how they're thinking, and then how you can best work with them. So let's take a, 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 a step back to the to the Lance years. So um, 
1999 uh, with Lance, you know, really uh, coming back from all these. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, what are your memories of uh, of that tour? 99. Um, well, my memories of that tour look it's easy. To, it's, it's easy to say in hindsight what that tour meant. You know, the guy was in the gear. But if you're talking about game, taking back my mind and my what I thought at the time, um, you know, obviously it was this. Uh, I guess even the word unbelievable, you can read into a different context now. But at the time, it was this unbelievable uh, fairy tale. Um, come back from uh, near fatal cancer. Um, uh, you know, obviously immediately there were there were suspicions of 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 doping, and that became the narrative for the. Uh, Rest of his his career and and, and probably still will be the narrative of the rest of uh, of his life and and of cycling's uh, uh, that chapter in cycling and not just him and doping but cycling and doping and uh, um, everybody who worked in that era you know so uh, but certainly it was a whirlwind of uh, of, of frenzies uh, sort of definitely too it could not be anything but you know um, you know coming after. Uh, 98 and um um you know it was uh, uh yeah it, it was quite uh it was a, it was a world with a bit of a blur because so much happened every day that you just thought well this guy he's going to keep the jersey he's gonna keep the jersey and look he did at the end and and that also transformed you know i guess uh you know american cycling um Obviously, was had hinged on the success of greg lamond and his three tour wins and his story alone was was a Remarkable story. We're talking about coming back from death, you know, Greg Lamont, who, who I followed his uh, tours in 88, 89, and 90, and 90, you know, uh, 91, you know, it was a transfer into the McGill Injury era. I mean, Greg Lamont's story was sensational in itself. Um, and uh, then for another country to have a story up another level of remarkable comeback from near fatal. Circumstances. Um, yeah, because Greg Greg had been shot by his brother-in-law while out turkey shooting. He thought he was the turkey. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, yeah that was one of my first. Like eighty-seven in the spring of eighty-seven, I, I just joined. Uh, like I said, winning that year, and I was actually in the Brussels office in in April when the report came through that his brother-in-law uh, shot him in a hunt for turkey hunting, and um, and uh, you know it wasn't. You know, he was near near death. He was you know. Managed to managed to get him out into a hospital. He was near death with all with all the pellets in him, and um, uh, obviously he came back. And then he had that uh, you know remarkable tour win in '89, where he beat Laurent Fignon in, in the last time trial in the Champs Elysees. I mean, how would you ever think something more dramatic and circumstantial from you know coming back from near death could you have than that? And then, well, Lance Armstrong came along. I'll top that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. So it, it, became, it did become a really strange time with the whole Lance. So as we talked about, there were, there were rumours always around uh, Lance. Was this amazing yeah. story, a story just too good to be true? Well, it, it turns out it was. Yeah, well, yeah. and, and that, that whole Lance Armstrong era, if the first year before he, up until, I guess, his reti first retirement, um, you know, I did write in my book What a Ride, which was a story of uh, Aussies in the Tour de France and trying to, uh, you know, me following them that time. And I mean, the when Armstrong did re retire after his after his uh, seventh seventh 
uh, not win. Um, uh, I did write in the book how that whole Lance Armstrong era was was a bitter era. It was a bitter era of, of obviously in hindsight because of the, the doping that was proven, but also with the a divisiveness within groups. You knew obviously he was uh, a great manipulator of people, of organisations, of, of so many parts. Um, uh, it, it was a you know from the press room to the state starting area, from teams to everywhere. Uh, you know um, people were split. Um, friendships were were forged. Friendships were were were, were challenged, and um, it was it was not. A, a nice, enjoyable era. Even then, and back in two, when I wrote this book in two thousand and eight, I wrote it was not an enjoyable era. That I, you know, I was glad it was gone, or so I thought it was gone. Um, but it was still going to obviously uh, become more apparent as to how bitter it was. And uh, um, anyway, that's yeah. Yeah. yeah well, so Lance, Lance, you you touched, you said the word before. He was the ultimate uh, manipulator. He manipulated situations. Uh, so that uh, it would be un- awkward for people to to question him all the time, and those people who did question him all the time you know, never got any time with him, which created an incident with uh, with David Walsh, who who uh, was really uh, onto the um, uh, anti uh, Lance campaign, uh, and they become you know quite uh, bitter rivals to the stage where he really. Um, took uh, umbrage with anything that David said, and it, and David was a regular traveller with you and your little group in the car. So just tell us about that incident where you were told, or not you personally, but your group were told David Welsh wouldn't be travelling with you, or you would get no uh, interviews. Yeah, look, um, uh, yeah, that was two thousand and four Tour de France start in in uh, in Liège. Um, and there's been, you know, different iterations of what happened there. And uh, there's been the, the Hollywood movie iteration. There's been um, the social media iteration. Uh, and um, one thing I can say, I have, to, you know, like David and I are friends now. And um, uh, and um, we've discussed this. Uh, also, the other thing I'd just like to say is uh, with the view to the handful of, of say, journalists who, who did pursue the Armstrong uh, doping story vigilantly, um, guys like Pierre Ballister, uh, um, Paul Kimmage, um, you know, I've I've been in contact with them, and uh, and I I think they were amongst many others uh, outside of the media. You know, I mean, you can talk of a long list. You know, uh, Betsy Andreu and Frank Andreu. Um, you know, there's a, there's a long list of people who were who were who were I'd say um, whether they were victims or survivors. But either way, they were they were unfairly, uh, um, uh, well, Armstrong was really bad to them. Okay, now um, the journalists who were pursuing the story, they were doing their job. I mean, I still and I do believe that uh, um, in the whole system that allowed Armstrong to develop the power base that he did, where he could become the manipulator, where he could become. Um, the person who, yeah, the manipulator, the person, the puppeteer, uh, the whole system that was built around him um, uh, was was complicit in in allowing him to do to have that to develop that power. So, from a media point of view, yeah, the media was 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 complicit as well, um, including you know, including myself, because I think we all have a responsibility uh, in in how a situation unfolds. I wrote that in two twelve. 
uh, piece I wrote for the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, I wrote two pieces saying that uh, I always took a cautious stand in, I still wrote about the doping stories, but I wasn't pursuing the doping stories as per as per Walsh or, or Kimmich, you know, much to their credit and to their courage, I would say. Um, and, um, but I did say that if, if my cautiousness was proven to be wrong, I'll definitely fall my sword and say I was wrong. Well, um, I knew what was going to happen. That I would be falling my sword because I wrote a piece saying um, I, I, I have my, I have to raise my hand for accountability in, into how I was a part of a system that, that allowed Armstrong to have, develop such a power base. His doping was, I've, I'll come back to your answer about the car incident, but it's important to clarify that because his doping was wrong, yeah, and he was one of, like, a large, large part of the peloton was doping. We all know that now. But his, how he, uh, he used his power and authority and managed to manipulate such, to, to actually get it all there, that's, that was wrong. But what was wrong was the system allowing him to, to get all that power, you know. So going back to, going, and I could talk all day about this, but, um, and I've said, and I don't really like talking about it, to be fair, because um, I'm happy to talk to you guys. You've got a platform which is open, and I've often said to people, I'd be quite willing to talk to people. I said it at, at dinners, and I was happy to talk to people about it. I don't like to talk about it on TV because it becomes like a 30-second grab. Same thing on social media because it comes sort of grabs, but I've always been open for people to contact me and talk to me privately about it or in a public forum where I get a chance to speak. The To go back to 2004, the situation at the time there in Liège, I was in the used car. I was working for News Limited. I was paying one quarter of the car. So David Walsh was paying one quarter of the car and, and it was a Velo News accredited car. Um, it was, it was nine in the lead up to the tour. I think Velo News were, were, were getting pressured about their access to Armstrong, et cetera, or, or possibly their advertising revenue, um, depending on how their position was with Armstrong. With a view to myself, um, I was already on, at the time, I was on Armstrong's blacklist because in 2003 I was put onto the blacklist for the second time because of my friendship with David Walsh. I went into that tour, obviously realizing there was, you know, they were trying to deal with David as to what he's, what he'll be doing or not. Um, I'd mentally taken a view to one of the last messages Armstrong, uh, which I took as a condescending thing, really, uh, where he said, Rupert, you just go and write about your Aussies. So that was as, he, as he put me on the blacklist. And so I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to write about the Aussies. And, and it didn't actually worry me in 2004 about being on his blacklist because I thought, what have to worry about chasing him around? Um, you know, uh, and the Aussies were starting to do very well. Obviously, Stuart O'Grady, um, Robbie McEwen, you know, he was doing pretty well with his green jersey, wasn't he? And so I was quite, I was, if anything, I was probably ambivalent when I heard at the start of the tour that um, uh, I told, oh, look, uh, we've spoken to David and we both agreed that it's best he doesn't come with us. I went, oh, well, what? Okay. You know, because so something was happening with that. I had my place in the car. After about 10 days, I learned what had actually happened and that um, I knew because I didn't see David much for the next 10 days. And when I did realise what had happened, that he'd been told that that we all thought he shouldn't be in the car. I was kind of uh, pretty... Uh, I was pretty annoyed, but also I was also annoyed with myself. I probably should have asked more detail. I shouldn't have been so ambivalent at the start about David not being in the car. I should have asked more about it because I realised how he... But how his take on it. So I went and apologised to David, 
and um, and he's recognised that since. Um, so that's what happened with the cars, and but obviously and understandably, it's become a talking point because it was a point in reference to a lot of uh, David's writings, which because it highlighted the the way the operating the systems of how it happened. Um, it became a you know obviously an interesting scene in, in uh, and an important scene in, in the movie um, that was there. So I understand people's interest in it. Um, and it wasn't a nice. It was yeah. I didn't enjoy that tour. I remember ringing ringing uh, home, you know, saying I'm just not enjoying the tour. This is awful. Um, it was you know to that point where, as I said, after 2005 when Armstrong retired, I was so happy at the time, thinking that would be the end of it. So it might not actually. It's, it's <laughs> a long answer, isn't it? Sorry about that. But, no, uh, no, no, that's many, fine. It's it, fine. It, it, it Look, it, it was a, a terrible time in our in our sport. Um, Lance, he won't be forgiven not for taking the drugs because that was a, a bad time for drugs in our sport. But he won't be forgiven because of his uh, the way his aggressive uh, way he handled and bullied people. That's what uh, that, that, that's what he won't be uh, forgiven for. But let's move away from Lance because we then had the terrible the, the next year um, in two thousand and. Uh, what was it 2006? Floyd Landis. What were your thoughts for the sport then when Floyd came out and found positive? Oh, look, again, I think by the time Landis had won the tour, I think the, the suspicions were already there. I mean, that, 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 that's when he, when he got that yellow jersey back with that uh, remarkable, well, unremarkable, unbelievable ride to get the jersey back. Um, uh yeah it was it was it it, it, it certainly smelled you know um i remember i left uh after that year's tour and I, I remember i heard about the the positive test uh i was in singapore in transit on the way home and um so it really wasn't that surprising but i remember thinking at the start of that year's tour maybe we'll see you know like clean sheets on a on a bed a nice soft <laughs> nice soft pillows how wrong, how wrong is that, you know? And then really you realise, well, you know, it hasn't changed. And and even when you look at, uh, uh, you know, now what we know in hindsight, better for hindsight again of, of the status of uh, doping, um, maybe just shows, just reinforces the fact, you know, obviously it wasn't just Armstrong who was uh, the perpetrator, uh, it was other riders. And again, it wasn't just other riders, it was a system in the sport, you know, the, 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 it was... Is far beyond just one or two riders, you know, it's the system. But, um, so things really haven't changed. The, the Renaissance Tour was so not the Renaissance Tour. No. You know? But, look, I really do. The best thing that happened in cycling was that, that Lance did make his comeback and then finally got exposed because without that cathartic situation, the sport mightn't have changed. And it's had this amazing turnaround uh, where the youngsters now – coming into the sport, really believing they can win the Tour de France clean. And and our Cadell's had a lot to do with that. Uh, I mean, uh, well, let's talk about uh, the emergence of Cadell, because that, that was uh, yeah, not just something great for Australian cycling, but great for, for world cycling. Mm. Yeah, look, I think, uh, you know, um, uh, I remember, you know, Cadell, uh, I think it was 2005, I think it was the stage finish in Mond, where uh, he was in a break with, uh, with Armstrong. And uh, 
I remember that's right. He was in a break, and and you know it's at the airstrip at Mont, at the top of the hill there. There's a three-kilometer climb, and you're on the airstrip, and then Cadell <laughs> beat somebody sprinted because he was there with. I think it was, uh, he beat Armstrong for eleventh place, <laughs> and the look on Armstrong's face was like, "What's what's this?" You know, like any any. I think he expressed his uh, view in Armstrong way, esque language. And uh, Hendrik Redant was uh, Cadell's um, uh, director sportif then, and he said he really likes that. He loves, you know, that someone's willing to take it to an Armstrong. Um, I'm also sure Armstrong saw that as, as a show of strength or whatever, but that was just Armstrong's, you know, bullish. But, you know, to me, it was a signifying that, hey, Cadell's not, you know, he's willing to take on something. He sees, that's what he said, I see a white line. And um, the fact that he was willing to take on Armstrong and that sprint for, that meant nothing. Still, uh, I think there's a little spark that showed that, well, as this show, that uh, here we've got someone who's going to um, come up, you know, and that was Cadell's first first touring or eighth in the, in, you know, and I thought, for me, I remember thinking, wow, this is great. This is, this is a fresh story to follow, uh, the narrative to follow. Um, and, uh, and obviously that became a, a, a narrative of highs and lows and varying explosive uh, emotions as well in its own, as, in its own way. So. Um, but that was a, that. Even a lot of the, the, the explosiveness of, of emotions and relations with 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 Cadell in those years, at least they were based on sporting sort of premises. And you know what I mean. It was you know it's a high, high tense um, atmosphere at stage finishes, particularly on mountains. You know everyone's trying to get stuff. And and this is even even then it was it was way before um, the advent of, of of social media and the internet's you know reach of power that it has now it was then a more traditional media sort of um uh, based uh, event you know where you, you know it was, it was it was more traditional than than what it is now anyway i remember uh, like we, we watched goodell uh you know finish second twice total of less than a minute um and just thought, is that his opportunity gone? I thought his first time he ran second to to Condor, he was probably robbed in that. Um, the Dane Rasmussen was rubbed out um, well into the race, and obviously he would have been on some super fuel. He was gone, but he he had, had, had taken a lot of time out of Cadell. Look, he, he, him racing Condor, and Cadell just lost. A lot of extra time because of Rasmussen, a lot more than what he lost that tour by. I felt. Yeah, so you're saying that, he, that that the energy he expended to try and account for Rasmussen could have cost him the energy, could have cost him the energy that he would have needed and would have had to to make that 23 seconds on on Contador. Yeah, uh, or, or in the tour anyway. Yeah, I I, uh, I think you can make the, the mathematical assumption on that in the end. Uh, and one of Cadell's uh, shows of strength, I think, is you know he obviously, um, you know, he, he had to move on from that too. Yeah, and and again, he had to do it again. And after, you know, not after, say, losing the tour in two thousand eight to Carlos Sastra, you know, that time trial um, where everybody thought <laughs> Cadell's a shoe in to win this, you know. And um, I remember that morning. Sorry if I've gone ahead to two thousand eight, but I remember that. Yeah. yeah. Saying, I had a news list of nine stories to write, and I had to get most of them written before time trial started. Just to get make the deadline, and um, I'd written five of them, with four to go, and and obviously uh, it didn't go the way that everyone thought. You know, even you know, remember like even 
there was polls in the papers and that God, Eddie Merckx was saying, yes, Kel Evans been tour. And, you know, it's like, wow. So I've written all the historical pieces, which fortunately I was able to, I kept copies of, I was able to use them several years later when you did need it. So, uh, but it was, it was exciting times, but then it was, I felt depressed by the time when Cadell suddenly just didn't have the right, you know, things went wrong on that time trial and um, Sastra won the tour and and uh, I felt deflated. But, you know, I was just a journalist. I had a job. I just had to go on to the next job. You know, Evans has had to sort of live with these setbacks, including other setbacks, like he's, you know, when he didn't miss out on the Welter win and um, Welter Espana win, you know. So he's, he's yeah, lived with all this. Yeah, yeah. a number of times he could have just been crestfallen and surrendered. But uh, I think the toughness of, of Cadell is just, it's uh, even, you know, you and I know it and we speak about it, but, you know, he's the one who really knows how tough yeah, that resolve he's got. And I don't think people will ever probably totally understand how tough he is. Um, it all changed, uh, it, it, I reckon, in 2010 when he won the world title. That, that, was a sort of big change in Cadell's um, way of thinking. I I, I feel because mm. he, he almost reaffirmed his belief that he can that is well that winning feeling and the way he won, and also um, you know uh, the, the way that uh, he had to assert himself within the uh, hierarchy of the Australian team. I mean, he only had one way to win. He had to win it that way. Just oh, bang! Wow, what what a ride! What a ride! You know. So now um, we move to the big one. 2011, mm. and, and, and uh, uh, what a race it was. And they had some highlights on the, on the telly last night of those stages. Um, when you think about those uh, two days around the Galibier, you know, the, it was the stage um, where, uh, where um, Schleck, uh, Andy Schleck and got, got, mm. got away and he had to chase and you thought, it's almost, uh, you know, gone. And then the next day, coming over Galibia the other way, where we had those bike problems. We couldn't, never really found out exactly what it was. We were stopping on the side of the road. Went, oh, no, it's gone again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was, it was, and Nokowitz gave him a push as well, didn't Jim Nokowitz? And, and Nokowitz landed in, in, landed in the gutter. <laughs> but, um, yeah, when, when I remember that. I thought, oh, this is not going to, it's meant to be. Fate's going to cruel us, you know, when, you, when that happened. But, Cadell was, when you look back on that tour, I mean, Cadell was as calm as I've ever seen Cadell, um, not just for one day, but for three weeks. At the same time, he's so, um, so assertive in what he wanted. I think, you know, that stage one, he, 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 um, he, got a one, he won a time, one second time bonus on stage one. I remember there thinking, and I'm not just, I did think it at the time, I'm not just saying because he was a tour in the end, but I remember there thinking, this is a different Cadell. He's going out for this. He's going out for something. He never said, one thing about Cadell, he's never said, I'll come out and said, I want to win the Tour de France. He just said, I want to do the very best I can and I want to have the best possible situation, a fair situation, I can find out how good I can be. Obviously, he wanted to win the Tour de France. But there, he, he got that time bonus. And there, the, 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 the BMC team, who weren't you know, gifted with climbers, but they used their strengths to protect Cadell. In those things, in that situation, rough and tumble stages over the yeah, classic style stages. Then he gets a couple more time bonus. And then he wins um, the, uh, the stage in you know, a finish over Contador in Britannia. You know, you think, geez, I was sorry, it's that many legends. Uh, 
gosh, golly, gosh, I'm going to win this, you know. And and he, um, uh, no, he, he he was ready for it. He was chasing that. And each day passed, he, he got stronger in his confidence and his team got that belief. I remember talking to George Hincapie because he was saying how they had to um, uh, basically corral Cadell, you know, ride around him. And, and, and Hincapie told me how to tell the younger riders, all these, all the pelotons going to pick on you guys because you're the younger guys because they weren't going to come up to those guys, you know, like Hincapie because they were seasoned pros. They were going to bully, try and bully them out to try and get, you know, break the wall to get in close to Cadell to, to crawl, you know, just to upset him. But they rode around him like a, like a, like a protective unit of, you know, a secret service around the President of the United States. And, um, and you could see that belief. And the more that Cadell saw for once in his life, he had a team rock solid committed to him and you know as a bike rider if he that one percentage between being a, you know a domestic and riding for your leader or being a domestic and believing in your leader you know there's a big difference you know you do it for the paycheck or you do it for the heart and soul and these guys were doing it because they believed they could win the tour and 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 Cadell fell off that i reckon i reckon he really did feed off it and, and i was happy for him to finally have that belief in his team because so many other times he, he never had belief in his teammates and almost at the times it sounded bitter and he, he had to didn't have to say anything he just he responded by riding as he did at the back end of the tour in those mountain stages almost you know in respect for the work that they did to get him there um it was fabulous mate it was just a fabulous it was and i, I remember uh so after the uh penultimate stage time trial which he just rode brilliantly uh, to get the yellow jersey. Uh, and uh, the press conference, after after stage conference, was in there at the Grenoble bike track there. And you and I happened to be sitting together right in the front row. Everyone's waiting for Cadell. So the place is packed. Remembering everyone's got to drive more than five hours up to Paris. So a lot of people would normally go, but they all waited around. Cadell took ages to get there, probably an hour, because he had, you know, not just the presentations, but um, doping control, all of those things. So he finally walks in and the whole press centre just stood up and applauded, something I'd never seen in all the tours that I'd been on. And it was, I believe, not just applauding the winner of that Tour de France, but uh, what they all believe was a clean winner of the Tour de France. That was that was the, and I remember you and I both uh, suffering with a bit of hay fever at that time. It was pretty special. I, I had to pass you the tissue box, didn't I? <laughs> you did. You did. No, it was, it was it was a special moment. I think there was a, you know, and there was nothing. It, it was spontaneous. I mean, I mean, usually, you know, you may see people. I mean. I'm not a big believer that press rooms should applaud, you know, because in particular, and I think particularly after uh, at that particular time, um, I just sort of didn't expect anybody to applaud. But uh, it was it was a spontaneous thing that people were generally happy, and uh, I, and I couldn't really remember the last time I'd seen a press room happy, and uh, from all different nationalities, you know, um, and that was great to see as well. You know, it reminded me of, you know, yeah, where, where sport can be, you know, we can get so caught up in the seriousness of sport. Sure, it's professional sports got a lot of money in it. There's a lot of issues in, in cycling. was going through a lot of uh, uh, controversy and, and, and scandal. Um, so there's every reason for people not to be seen to be happy. But bang, it's just like a, a candle light being 
you know, set alight. And uh, there was that glow of happiness that afternoon. And people, as you said, people didn't rush off to get to, to Paris. People were enjoying writing their stories of a guy called Cadell, you know? And Everyone the thought biggest... they were going <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, the biggest grin on his yeah. face. Like, I remember as he walked around uh, to the to the uh, to his seat and the podium in front of us. I leaned over just to put my tape recorder in front. He just said, "Oh, good day, Ify. How are you, mate?" Like, like he just <laughs> ridden around the park or something. Not just grabbed uh, the, the, the about to win the Tour de France. It's pretty amazing. And I remember I was standing with you uh, uh, on the last day when he had finally won it, uh, and we're standing there when um, Tina Arena got up, which was an amazing moment how she did that, uh, and just uh, sang the national anthem. And that was another yeah. um, where I had to hand you the tissue box. <laughs> no, I never did. No, I, was, I was too hard in the soul by then. You know, I was, I was, I was, uh, it was a fabulous moment. And that, that was actually the first time that, that people, you know, like, you know, before they used to just get the old record out to play the national anthem, you know, and here you had somebody singing it, and it actually added to it, you know, the beautiful uh, gesture by her, but it was also a spontaneous gesture by her. You know, to, to to put the call and to ask if she could do it, and um, uh, and I think you know, uh, it was a nice change of pace to those, particularly after the, you know, the Armstrong sort of, you know, mantra, messages of to the cynics out there and that sort of stuff, where it almost became painful to, well, it did become painful to listen to to hear that, and then he had someone singing a national anthem beautiful, you know, rather than just an old record, you know, it was a and there you had that summer glow over the Arc de Triomphe and, uh, you know, even then security wasn't like it is now. It was still very much a time where, uh, you know, like a lot of the issues of, uh, you know, with security issues, that it makes things a lot more tense at that finish line now than what they were then, you know. It wasn't that long ago, but it seems a long time ago. We were able to enjoy, enjoy those moments. No? Yeah, pretty special. So... We just to touch on, uh, look, we've touched on all those tours, but last year's tour, I thought was one of the best of all time. I, I thought Cadell's was one of the greatest, but last year's tour, just every stage was just amazing. And, and I just loved it. Ella Philippe, his whole journey, um, you know, Richmond Scott winning four stages, Caleb, uh, his three beautiful stages, um, but just. The, the bike race itself, I thought it was really stepped up. Yeah, I thought it was a, it was a, yeah, it was a race of spontaneity. Again, that word spontaneity, but it was. Uh, and um, you know, obviously, Alaphilippe was, was the one who, who I think really ignited it. But as you said, other teams delivered, other riders delivered. Um, you know, Caleb Ewan's stage with Paris. You know. That was that was fabulous, you know, and uh, and um, you know, not just to get three stages, but that to win on Paris is a, is it's it's the stage to win for any sprinter, and um, I think uh, even even the, the dramatic finale to it, you know, people couldn't say, oh, that was a shame, the stages were cancelled, but that was Mother Nature, you know, and I thought it's very easy in these days, you know, we've. It's very easy these days to criticise organisers and, you know, like organising a race and, and everything like that. But when things go uh, catastrophically as wrong as they did in the tour last year due to Mother Nature, which is an unstoppable beast, um, 
how ASO responded by by cancelling, you know, the stage, uh, you know, the last mountain stage, as it did. Um, uh, you know, hats off to them for how they handled it and how swiftly they were able to contain it. Obviously, most of the race was going up the mountain, but you had the breakaway, um, you know, with with Yates in it. You know, and they they're hurtling down the mountain, you know, with Banal, you know, to to get the stage within and secure the the GC and suddenly the guy on a motorbike comes up and says stage is over like because they hadn't stopped them then there was that that, uh, that landfall I mean, quite possibly they never got their through. life you know yeah. and it was it was um it was a, it was it was a brilliant coordination of not just ASO decision making but how you use the resources you've got from policing to to uh, staff and to everybody understanding and cooperating and. And I think that was that was the success for the tour. How they handled that because disasters can only go one way or can only go two ways. You know, disasters are averted or or the cat. You know, they're, they're tragic. And and anyway, uh, that was anyways. It was a fabulous, fabulous tour. You know, and I was glad to thrilled to have been there. Roop, it's been fantastic to uh, to have this chat, longest chat we've had in quite a while, actually. Um, yeah. You've had uh, it's been an unbelievable journey, uh, and I know it's far from over. Um, unfortunately, we won't be able to host our Tour de France uh, after party uh, in about a week or so. Um, we'll have to save that for next year, but uh, I'm sure we'll catch up for a rosé very soon. Anyway, no, that'd be great if you'd love to. But thanks, thanks for having me, and uh, uh, thanks to everybody who's you know who's, who's listened. And any of the stuff I can just add, any of the stuff that we've spoken about, you know, uh, any of the issues. Um, I'm, as I said, I'm always happy to talk about them. If people want to ask me, just need to have the platform where I can get time and space to give the best answers I can, rather than willy-nilly short grabs. Thanks, Rob. Fantastic, mate. Thanks, mate. See you, mate.